Born Again Where did all this born again talk really originate? Tracing down the origin of the phrase born again is our point of discussion, and our search takes us to the fourth book of the New Testament, a gospel written by one of Jesus' most trusted friends. Check out John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as we listen in to an interview Jesus had with a rabbi. The unbelieving world has an idea, born again is somehow a negative thing. You know, I've even been in some churches. I've spoken in some churches where you spoke about being born again, and when you're all done, someone will say, you know, that preacher evidently doesn't think some of us, you know, are where we need to be. Evidently, that preacher is concerned about us, and, and there's almost a feeling like, doesn't he know that we're good people? Doesn't he know that we go to church regularly, that we give our money, that we're good religious people? You know, how could he have the audacity of saying that there might be a need in our life to be born again? After all, you know, born again, that's just something that a few strange people do. In the midst of all this discussion about what it means to be born again, the implication is that in the uh, maybe the middle of the 70s, suddenly the United States of America started the idea, born again. Now, you all know, I'm sure most of you that are knowledgeable enough in the Scripture to know that that's not true at all. That being born again, the idea of being born again, did not originate with Jimmy Carter. It wasn't a slogan word that some political speechwriter came up but the origination of the idea of born again began way back in the life of Jesus. In fact, it goes back even before that. It goes way back into the Old Testament with the idea of the need to receive a new heart. I want to share today what I believe in many ways is, is my most favorite chapter in the Bible because it's the most intimate conversation we have where Jesus answers the most important question that any of us can ever have answered. The most important question that I can ask you in your life and that you can have the right answer to is this question. Now get this. The most important question that you can ask in your life and that you can have answered in your life is this question. How do I get into the kingdom of God? The question that's the most vital question that you need to answer in your life it's how can I be sure that I'm a member of the kingdom of God? Now, how do people answer that question? It's an incredible thing. I can do a funeral where I make the gospel very, very clear, and I, I'm guaranteed when the graveside service is over and I walk to the side, somebody will come up to me sometime after that service and say, I'll be at church next Sunday. It's guaranteed. Now, what's going on there? I haven't seen you in a long time, Dave, but I'll be there next Sunday. What has happened? In the funeral service, they were touched with reality. Someone has died. Someone has gone through that transition from physical life to whatever kind of life there is out there. And that's a reality. And their conscience has been pricked because they've been running along in this physical life. They've been busy in their family, busy in their work. And now they feel like, man alive, that could be me in that box. And I want to make sure all the boxes are covered, all the bases are covered. So what they're going to do is they're going to get real religious again. 
And so what I see happen, they will be at church the next Sunday, maybe the next four Sundays, and then it kind of goes all over again. They're right back, just living for now. But the tragedy is basically what they're thinking is, if I get religious enough, if I go to church enough, if I do enough good works, then that'll guarantee that everything's going to be okay. There's a fundamental belief that's very much imprinted upon our hearts inside that goes like this. When someone dies, God puts all the good things on one side of the scale and all the bad things on the other side of the scale. And if by hook or by crook, the good outweighs the bad, then everything's going to be all right. That is embedded in our old nature. We naturally believe that the way you get to heaven is by trying to be good. And the issue becomes, well, how good do I need to be? And there's a bunch of unbelievers that are still sleeping this morning that are saying, well, I'm not going to go to church because I'm just as good as they are. And I believe when I get to heaven, God will put all the good things that I've done on one side of the scale and it'll be just as good as those that are in church even on Daylight Saving Sunday. That's basically the idea. Now just think about it. Isn't there a part of you that says, yeah, that's the way things are. That's why you need to listen to me. Because I want to share from the depths of my heart, listen, I don't know how to get into the kingdom of God in Dave Wurtzen's own thinking. I don't know how to get into the kingdom of God. I don't know a preacher on earth that can tell you how to get into the kingdom of God through their own mentality, through their own thinking. I don't care what school they went to. I don't care what degree they have. I don't care what kind of robes they wear. I don't care what kind of water they throw around. I don't care what kind of incense they burn. I don't care what kind of hocus pocus they go through. I don't know a man on earth except one that can tell you authoritatively this is how you get into the kingdom of God. And John 3 is where he answers the question. Let's turn there. John chapter 3. Very interesting conversation. It's with a Jewish person. So contrary to anybody that thinks that Christianity is a culture, Judaism is a culture, and Christianity in the Bible has nothing really to say to Judaism, you couldn't possibly read your Bible for five minutes and think that that were true. Jesus is at a time in his ministry in John 3 where he's dealing primarily with Jewish people. And chapter 2 closed with something very important that I want you to see because it leads in to what we're going to look at in John chapter 3. In John chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Now while he was in, the, in Jerusalem at the feast of Passover, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing, and they believed in his name. Many people watched Jesus early in his ministry doing miraculous works in the city of Jerusalem. Many of them began to move towards Jesus. In fact, it even uses the words that are often used in the Gospel of John for people that are intimately trusting in Christ as their Savior. But I don't believe that these individuals had the real thing in their heart. You say, why not? Because when someone has the real thing in their heart, Jesus gives himself to them. Jesus comes to live inside of them. Jesus becomes their close friend. Even at this stage, before the Holy Spirit was given, Jesus gave himself to the true disciples. He lived with the true disciples. And yet, notice what it says in the next verse, verse 24. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Why? 
for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Unlike everybody else on this planet, Jesus is the one man that doesn't just hear our words. Jesus goes right beyond our words and goes into our heart. One of the biggest adjustments for me to make in my own ministry with people is to realize that people don't always say what they mean. People often, some of the best talkers, some of the people are the most eloquent. I've worked with people that really speak God's word much better than I do. You know, they're, they're just eloquent. They, they have the right anecdote constantly. And they're able just to wow an audience. And yet as you work with them over time, you find out they don't really believe any of it. Jesus is the one man that can see through all of that. Now, what was happening? Jesus was a great, miraculous worker. Many mir miracles started happening. That is a big show. Many people began to be attracted to him. Man alive, here's the guy that's going to be able to deliver us from the Romans. Here's the person that's going to be able to feed us. He's going to be able to give us bread. He's going to be able to meet our needs. And they began to move towards them. And most of us, like the average preacher, would go, great, the church is growing. People are coming. Man, it's just fantastic. we got a real people movement. Let's crank up the machine and get it going harder. That's what I just intrigues me about Jesus, not Jesus. He never gets pushed over by a people movement. Jesus never gets enamored with a big newspaper man that begins to push his ministry. You know why? Because he deals with total integrity with every man and woman. And he loves people. It's not that he doesn't want people to love him, but he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to boost up his ego. He doesn't need us to do his thing. He really loves us and he deals with the truth with us. And what's happening here is a gigantic crowd starts to gather around Jesus. But Jesus knows that the crowd, like the Dallas Cowboy audience, can be gone tomorrow if we stop winning, if it gets tough. And all crowds are like that. If you're ever on a roll in your life, in your business, anywhere, and the crowds are gathering around and you think everyone's your friend, watch out. Because that crowd will abandon you just like that. And the only kinds of relationships that really last are relationships that are built on the integrity and the truthfulness of a walk with Christ that's for real. But in the midst of this crowd that's coming to Jesus, there are people that really have sincerity. They have the truth. They really care about Jesus, and they're beginning to walk towards him. One of those men is a man named Nicodemus. Look at what it says in John chapter 3, because there's no chapter division in the original letter. It just goes right on. Now, out of this crowd that's beginning to be attracted to Jesus, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Let's look a little bit about this Pharisee. This Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, which meant that he was at the epitome of Judaism in the first century. This man as a Pharisee meant that he kept the over 600 rules and regulations. If you want a religious man, I could have gone to almost anybody that read the papers of, in Jerusalem in the first century and says, Nicodemus. And almost everybody that was knowledgeable in Jerusalem would say, a man of God, a devoted man, 
a man that represents everything that is good in religion. He's a sincere man. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of truth. He goes to the synagogue, and he is an expert teacher of the law. In fact, he is so godly that we have made him a leader. He is on the ruling council of all of Judaism, representing Jews from all over the world. If he were alive today, he would be a doctor of the doctors. He would be a pastor of the pastors. He would be the religious guy. Now, you've got to get a hold of that. Because we have kind of a negative attitude towards Pharisees because Jesus has already given us some of the inside story on their life. But the secular evaluation of Phariseeism in the first century in, this, in the land of Palestine was a good one. You could think of the most eminent religious man that you can think of from a religious standpoint, from morality, from going to church, from being part of religious organizations, and you've got an idea of what Nicodemus was like. That's the kind of a man he was. Phariseeism is a beautiful, very intricate, very involved religious moral system. And Nicodemus represented the finest of that system. Look what it says. He came to Jesus at night. The vast majority of you were born again to God's family at night. Now, I, how many of you have ever heard a message on Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night because he was too scared to come in the daytime and it was kind of a negative idea? How many of you have ever heard a message like that? Well, don't you all be too hard on Nicodemus because I came to Jesus at night. Most of you came to Jesus at night. Nicodemus came at night. I don't know why he came at night. Maybe he was a little bit scared. But also there was a Talmudic uh, tradition that you would often study the law at night. Maybe um, Nicodemus wanted to come and study the law with Jesus at night. What I want you to see is that he came to Jesus. I think there's a movement of faith. There are steps to faith. First of all, Nicodemus, unlike Caiaphas, unlike Annas, unlike many of the other members of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus went right to the source. He was willing to talk with Jesus. Your spiritual destiny depends upon being willing to come to Jesus and talk. And you can hear his voice in a passage like today that we're studying. I don't care whether you agree with me. I don't care whether you buy what I'm telling you. But from the depths of my heart, I plead with you, don't facetiously go through life and not ever confront the words of the living Jesus in the Bible. You owe it to your eternity to stop this baloney. Well, this church thinks that, and that church thinks that, and that church thinks that, and that church is filled with hypocrites, and these people let me down, and mom and dad crammed church down my throat when I was a kid. I'm not going to ever go again. You owe it to yourself to get by that baloney and think about the words of Jesus. Because one day his words will judge the living and the dead. That's not my opinion. That's the opinion of the ultimate creator of the universe. Listen. Nicodemus began where all of us need to begin. He was willing. He was willing to come and let Jesus interact with him. Second of all, he recognized that Jesus was a teacher come from God. Notice what it says. He says to him, Rabbi... We know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miracles that you're doing if God were not with him. 
Now you can begin your conversation. This will help some of you that are born again. This will help you in your conversation with an unbeliever. You can let an unbeliever begin with a teacher come from God. Almost every unbeliever will buy that. I mean, very few people are going to say, well, I think Jesus is a teacher come from the pit of hell. Now, a Satanist might say that. In fact, even a Satanist really won't say that. So that's almost common ground. Judaism recognizes Jesus was a godly teacher. Almost any cult will realize that. So you can begin with that common ground. He's a teacher come from God. Now listen, if that's true, if he's a teacher come from God, and I spend the time with integrity to come and have a conversation with him, then it only follows that what he tells me is going to be true. If he's really a teacher come from God, then what he tells me is going to be the truth. The incredible thing to me is there's all kinds of people that will say he's a teacher come from God, but they will not listen and read what he says. So they have this crazy, very inconsistent view. Oh, yeah, I think Jesus is a good teacher. I said, okay, what did he teach? And as I begin to have them explain what he teaches, they don't know what he taught at all. You say, well, how do I find out what he teaches? Keep reading. Don't just memorize John 3.16 and think that God dropped it out of the sky somewhere and it just sits out there. John 3.16 is in, is in the flow of a conversation. And you'll understand what John 3.16 means. You'll understand what Jesus means as a teacher when you just listen like you listen to anybody else. Let him teach you. So this conversation develops. Nicodemus is willing to talk with Jesus. He begins with a teacher come from God. And number three, he had an honest recognition of the miraculous power of Jesus. I want you to see something. Not even the enemies of Jesus ever said the miracles are not genuine. That's an incredible reality of the first century. Now, a lot of them said, well, the miracles came from Beelzebub or from the demonic rulers. They would say that. But none of them ever said, well, the miracles aren't real. They were authentic. All the first century witnesses say the miracles are true. They're happening. Then they try to explain them. And if you're trying to lead people to Christ, you need to try to get them to begin to think about the claims that were made about Jesus. Because the signs that Jesus did cannot cause faith in the ultimate sense, but they can begin to cause someone to walk towards that personal commitment. Nicodemus was on the way to faith because he was willing to talk. He was a man of integrity that was willing to listen and interact with Jesus. Number two, he believed he was a teacher come from God. And number three, he was responding to the miraculous signs that Jesus did. Now, how does Jesus respond? Look at the next verse. In reply to this discussion, I believe you're a teacher come from God. Nobody could do the miracles unless God were with them. Notice how Jesus replies. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now, that is the thesis of this chapter. Jesus is a very skillful teacher. He says, listen, class, listen, Nicodemus, this is what it's about. Unless a man, unless a woman, unless an individual is born from above. The word that's used for again can mean in Greek either born from above 
or born a second time. And in this context, it implies both of those realities. You need to be born a second time and you need to be born from above by a work of God. And Jesus said, if you're not born from above, if you're not born a second time, we're not going to get into the kingdom of God. Now, don't get angry with me. Because I didn't say that. I'm sure that I would not have come up with that plan. So if you want to be angry, don't be angry with me. My dad often said he can never for the life of him figure out why people get upset when you talk to them about the need to be born again. Because my dad said it's not the second birth that gets you into trouble. If anyone wants to get mad, you should get mad at your first birth. It's your first birth that got you into trouble. That's what got me into trouble. It's what got us born into the Adamic family. It's what caused us to be born into a sinful race. It's evidence that we are part of a sinful race, that when Jesus tells us we need to be born out of that race, we need to get into a new race, that we're uptight about it. We say, man, the audacity of God thinking I need to do that. Now, I want you to notice something. Who does Jesus tell they need to be born again? Was it the criminals down in Huntsville? In this case, no, it wasn't. Was it the drug addict? Was it the bad person? No. Who did Jesus say needed to be born from above? It was the religious leaders of the religious leaders. Across this town, there are people that are religious. It is in to be religious. In fact, you are out of it if you're not religious. Now, that is really different from where I was raised, like I've often shared with you. Where I was raised, you were out of it if you were religious. You knew how to explain what it meant to go and visit a building with a steeple on it on Sunday morning because that was kind of a foreign thing. They used to do that back in the pilgrim days where I was raised and back in the Dutch days when New York was just a little tiny settlement. But in the 20th century in New Jersey, on Sunday morning, you slept. But not here. A lot of people sleep. But man, you can go across. Sometime I've driven across this town. It's incredible on a Sunday morning. Man, the parking lots are filled. It's the end thing to be religious. Trying to get into a political office and say, I don't believe in church. I don't believe in church attendance. I think the whole thing is a bunch of hooey. Boy, you won't get elected in a million years if you do that. No, you've got to come to all the preachers, all the ministerial alliance, and convince them that you're a good Christian. Notice who Jesus said must be born from above. Because, oh, I don't want you to miss this. I would hate to have somebody stand before Christ and say, Jesus, I was religious. I was deeply, deeply involved in good works. Okay? We've got to be born from above. A religious leader included. Now, how does Nicodemus respond to this? Look what it says. Verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Now, what was the mistake that Nicodemus made? When you're witnessing to people, this will often happen. People make the mistake constantly. When Jesus talks to them about spiritual realities, they think he's talking about physical realities. And Nicodemus is almost a little bit sarcastic here. He says, you tell me I'd be born again, and he just picked up on the again, not the from above part. 
And Jesus, you know, Jesus wasn't talking about going back into your mother's womb. It's very, very hard for us to move from physical object lessons to deep spiritual realities. And that's what Jesus wrestled, wrestled with Nicodemus about. He's going to wrestle with the woman of Samaria about that. It's very hard for us to think in terms of spiritual terms. We think in terms of physical terms. Nicodemus says, that's impossible. I can't go back and become a little baby again. I can't be conceived in my mother's womb again. It's impossible for me to be born physically again. So that's a legitimate question. Even though it's sarcastically given probably about how ridiculous could you make a statement like that. Jesus in the next verse goes on to explain it. So what we have in this chapter is a series of question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. And here's the first question. How, first question was, how do I get born again? How do I enter the kingdom of God? Jesus responds, thesis, you've got to be born from above to enter the kingdom of God. First question in response to that, it's impossible. How can a person be born a second time? Jesus responds, I tell you the truth. Notice how Jesus begins every one of his replies. Verse 3, verse 5, I tell you the truth. Verse 11, I tell you the truth. Jesus is the one who tells us the truth about the kingdom of God. Look what he says. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born out of water and out of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again or from above. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born from above. Now, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, he picks up on what Nicodemus says. He's not saying that a man must be born of water equals baptism. And then they need to be born internally, which is a spiritual act of receiving Christ. He doesn't say that. What he does is pick up on. Nicodemus says, could I be born physically the second time? And Jesus says, no. You've got to be born of water, which I believe is the same expression. You've got to be born of the flesh. In order to be born spiritually, you have to become a human being. You've got to be given a physical birth. So Jesus takes Nicodemus from where he is, talking about physical birth, and he goes on to talk about where he wants him to go, talking about spiritual birth. He's saying that a person needs to be born, first of all, of water. And that refers to being born physically. But we also need to be born of the Spirit. 